Welcome to another episode of Residentially Speaking, a podcast dedicated to bringing you interesting and informative content from key builders, dealers, thought leaders, and influencers across the residential construction industry. I'm your host, Alan Hubble. We've learned, you know, through our mistakes that we need to incorporate the building science and be able to insulate and air tighten the house and ventilate the house properly and then think about what's the drying potential of these assemblies, what's the permeability of these assemblies and, and whatnot. Robbie Shorts, welcome to the podcast. Great to have you. Thank you very much. Uh, I appreciate being here and doing a shared podcast with you. My guest on today's podcast is Robbie Schwartz, founder and principal thinker of Bill Tank Incorporated. For nearly 30 years, Robbie has been engaged in applied building science, resiliency and sustainability, energy efficiency, and building codes. His experience has varied, including several years working as a commercial fisherman in Alaska. He's traveled the world. He's worked in the construction trades and then as a consultant with production and custom home builders, worked with code jurisdictions, private clients, and the Colorado Energy Office, among others. Robbie's mission at Build Tank is to be a practical building think tank whose mission is to use what we learn by applying building science in the field to affect meaningful change in the construction industries. Simply put, Robbie's mission is to bring sustainable building into the mainstream. He gives us his thoughts on what that takes and how it might happen. We're also trying something a bit different than our other podcasts. Robbie has his own podcast associated with Bill Tank Inc. So he's gonna turn the tables on me and ask me some questions throughout the session. Please join us as we dive into high performance building and sustainable building. Residentially speaking, that's coming up. So um, I gave a little bit of a brief background as we set this up, uh, the listeners will have heard it, but if you would give us, give us your, uh, your background and your bio. How did you get into construction? What in you know what what drove your interest and uh, and kind of you know where you come from? Where where have you been and where where you come from? Yeah, so I'm based in Denver, Colorado, and I'm not an engineer or from that background. Actually, I was a history and political science uh, major and thought that I might uh, go into teaching, uh, and then I started traveling and. Uh, needed to figure out what I was going to do with myself when I, I came back from traveling. So I um, the choices at that time in the world, really, from an environmental career perspective, was environmental law or environmental policy. And I really couldn't figure out um, that it made sense to go back to school uh, to, to do a degree in one of those things. I couldn't I didn't want to be a lawyer and I didn't really understand what environmental policy uh, would take me. So I kind of went back to uh, construction that I had done in high school and college and began to work with a regional production builder here in Colorado and uh, was in charge of how do you bring this new host of green building materials into a production home environment? So at that time, green building materials were OSB and iJoyce and cellulose insulation and whatnot. And we were just kind of beginning the, the process of talking about building science and at least in production building uh, and what that meant. And luckily there was a program in Colorado through the state energy office 
uh, where a uh, energy engineer and an architect, they were going around testing houses and kind of giving feedback for free to builders about what, what blower door testing was, what air tightness was, what duct leakage was. And so we got involved in that program. And like most people who work for a builder, you get laid off at some point. And I got laid off yeah. and started to work for that state energy office program uh, because I started to become really interested in building science. And then uh, right after that, uh, the first energy rating class happened in the state of Colorado and I became an energy rater, uh, thinking that I would incorporate energy ratings and home inspections because the energy efficient mortgages were all the rage at that point. Um, energy efficient mortgages are still around, but they've never taken off. And so I then moved into working with builders at that point and started doing energy ratings and building science consulting and uh, trying to understand codes and energy codes and energy code development, uh, got involved with that. And now I helped grow one of the largest uh, energy rating companies in Colorado, right at the pandemic, decided to go back out on my own and create Build, Build Tank Inc. And Build Tank Inc, I call a practical building think tank. Uh, I try to get involved in, in issues and, and things in the building industry that I think will help move our industry forward there. Yeah, I noticed in reading through your, a lot of your information on your website and so forth, you talk a lot about practical, applicable building science, right? Pragmatic is a yeah. lot of the words that you, that pepper through your, through your descriptions. Back to, uh, back to, so we're talking, um, so when, when you formed, I think it was Energy Logic, right? This energy radio. Yeah. That was what mid late nineties then mid mid nineties uh, in two thousand and six. Uh, two thousand six. My then business partners uh, and I created uh, Energy Logic. Before that, I had a company, an energy rating company called uh, Built Right, and uh, we we were kind of chasing each other around the Front Range of Colorado. Okay. And uh, decided to merge our companies, and we created uh, Energy Logic, and. Uh, grew energy logic over the course of 14 years before I uh, decided to go back out on my own. Okay. When you were traveling the world, do you traveling the world or the U S any yeah. place, any place fun? Yeah, we, uh, we decided to go to Japan and Japan was kind of our home base. And we taught English, uh, in Japan for almost two years. Uh, my now wife and I, and, uh, some other friends that were there as well. Uh, then we, we ended up traveling a lot around Southeast Asia. And then when we left Japan, we traveled um, across, well, into Pakistan and then across the Silk Road uh, from Pakistan into Western China or East. Huh. Yeah, it would be Western China. And then across China and took the Trans-Siberian Railroad wow. Uh, wow. over to uh, Europe. So that was, that was pretty amazing because that was right when uh, Gorbachev was really changing Russia. So we were kind of at that point, what I think people thought it was right when the Berlin wall was starting to what well, came down right before we got to Berlin. Yeah. And we were in what we thought at that point was the last uh, military parade through Red Square. Uh, some so saw, got to see some pretty amazing things and kind of Very cool. 
always interesting to get a different perspective of the United States from abroad and being abroad for a long time uh, allows you that advantage that to kind of look, look at your own country. Yeah. So we have that in common. I've been in Red Square twice, 1982 and 1997, April of both years. Um, yeah, that, that we, we should talk about that offline sometime. Yeah. That'd be cool. So, Alan, um, I wanted to learn more about your background as well. You're with, uh, you're the residential marketing leader uh, for DuPont Performance Building Solutions. Yeah, Tell correct. Yeah, so I, I, uh, I've been with DuPont over 30 years. I started, I have a degree in mechanical engineering and, um, and I went back to school for some business classes. I never finished, I got transferred. Um, and there's a whole nother story there. But uh, so I come at it with an engineering background and uh, spent eight to 10 years in R&D and, and or the plants and manufacturing for DuPont, moving around a couple different locations. I worked in West Virginia, I worked in uh, Wilmington, I worked in Memphis, Tennessee for 10 years. Uh, making hydrogen peroxide of all things, yeah, and which so it gave me a great insight into large scale chemical manufacturing. You know, you learn a lot, and manufacturing is a lot of fun. It's everything. It's kind of like home building. Everything's different every day. You're solving different problems, and a lot of pressure. Right, that's money, money on the line every day that you're that you're not running or have an issue. So I did that, and then I always had an interest in the business side. So I got out of that after about ten years, and was fortunate enough to jump into a uh, sales and tech service role in um, uh, DuPont sold an inner layer of for laminated glass into into uh, the to the glass fabricators. And at the time, DuPont was looking to develop the Florida impact window market. We we believe that laminated glass could be a solution, and so I was tasked to help join the team that was doing the market development. So I um, tooled all around Florida, called on glass fabricators like. Cardinal Glass, uh, HGP at the time, now Old Castle, uh, Sahi Glass, anybody was working with flat glass and trying to build um, impact windows. So the flying two by four test, all that stuff you see down in Florida, that was a huge effort by DuPont over 10 or 12 years. And I was right in the middle of that. Uh, uh, that kind of ran its course. And then in 06, I joined the Tyvek business and um, into into a marketing role and have been here ever since we obviously merged with Dow back in 2016 I think it was so it's good six years now the DuPont Dow merger and with that obviously continued to focus on residential picked up other products in the portfolio like styrofoam and then some of the great stuff um, or froth pack some of the spray foam products so have some some res marketing responsibilities there so it's been a it's been a pretty cool ride with over 30 yeah. years a variety of jobs between manufacturing, manufacturing management, sales, and, uh, and marketing. I always tell, um, I tell folks that sales is out is a great job, right? You're out there, you're the, you're the cowboy, you're on your own, you're meeting customers and, and driving business, but uh, really enjoy the marketing side with the strategy and the, the ability to kind of think a little bit longer term and, and, and drive the business that way. But you're, you started in the science side with the hydrogen peroxide was actually manufacturing that product. I did. Actually, I started in R&D in a okay. physical testing lab working for a rheologist, which is pushing liquids through a small opening and then measuring the resistance and different properties. Yeah. So um, I started working for a PhD. I was working for a PhD chemist at the same site I'm at now in Wilmington, which is a large research site. 
And then from there, I went out and went to manufacturing. My second manufacturing job was the hydrogen peroxide. Yeah. I bet that the science background has helped you in your marketing side. It has. I mean, yeah, right. Understanding applications and, and, and the, you know, the materials being used. And then obviously, you know, I, I didn't grow up in the industry, but I've spent enough time now, you know, 15, 16 years in exterior building products. And then before that, you know, glass, I knew a lot about glass for 10 years there. Um, I've been in most of the major glass fabricators plants and knew the leadership and, and knew the market pretty well. So between the glass and, you know, we, we offer flashing products. So it's a nice tie in with the water management and the windows and the fenestrations. Um, so um, that, that's been really, really fun to, you know, it's been 25, 26 years now in, in building products. Yeah. So that's uh, what I'm trying to do is to take that building science, because I'm not a scientist, I don't come from that background, uh, but figure out how, how do you apply building science? How do you actually apply that flashing material that, that DuPont uh, sends out to the field uh, so it actually performs? And what, one of the, the big things is I do a lot of code work and this idea that when you're inspecting something, you're, you're, you can't just look at it that it's been, an, it's there. You know, I can't just go to the house and say, oh, I see Tyvek on the house and I can walk away and go look at my next house. I actually have to look, how has it been installed? How does it work as it's been installed? So is it there and does it work has kind of become this mantra that a mentor of mine uh, locally here in Colorado, I think, came up with. And I think it really is applicable to figuring out, are we applying this stuff properly so it actually yeah. works there? Yeah, it's a great point because we talk about, um, as we think about value proposition for some of our products, like, you know, we'll argue all day long and you know, we believe our products are the best and premium and so forth. But at the end of the day, you're exactly right. They have to get installed properly or they're not, they, you know, you're not, you're not getting full value for them. Just putting them up on the wall isn't, isn't magic. So yeah. got to get installed properly. We would even argue, and, and interested in your thoughts on this, you know, so they got to be installed properly per the details, but the details have to be solid and good too, right? And we've seen that. And we know that can be a source of failure. Matter of fact, we go so far as to, any detail that's released by DuPont, we test, we do wall tests internally and run it through its paces. Fairly rigorous, fairly, fairly rigorous protocol, much, much above code so that, so that we know, you know, good product on the wall properly and the details will hold up as well. And so the kind yeah. of the full package is what we're focused on. Yeah, I think that it's crucial. Uh, those details are crucial uh, that they get included in the construction documents uh, that the architect understands it and is able to take take that to the builder who ultimately takes it into the field and hopefully uh, helps guide it to be executed properly is crucial. And it, it brings up you know something that I harp on a lot because again, I, I have done a fair amount of uh, energy code code development process through the IECC. Um, I teach codes, energy code, stuff through through our state energy office and our our local utility um excel energy um it's crazy there how much building science and sound basic building practices are wrapped into the code 
yet people have this impression that code is bad or code is, is I think this word that we've associated with code is minimum is doing a huge disservice to our ability to get houses built to code that actually work and enforce it because the code, the code as written is incorporating lots of great building science and, and practices and whatnot. And one of them is that it's a mandatory requirement in essence in the, in the energy code that these details are on the construction documents. Yet when the plan is reviewed, they're not reviewing it for those details. Right. Um, and therefore it's not getting into the field and you know the builders is doing what they've always done and it's the installations aren't happening correctly yeah i mean that that's a tough ask isn't it that puts a that puts a lot of pressure on the uh, code official or the person reviewing those documents to have to be an expert isn't it in all well, these areas no it's it's that they're not necessarily reviewing the um the efficacy the quality of okay. that that detail but the they're, fact that they're there. They're, yeah, the fact that they're there. So it really puts the onus on the architect. The yeah. architect, you know, is designing this assembly. Well, why don't they grab some of the details that DuPont's putting out there to put on their 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 documents to ensure that what they're designing and the products that they're using uh, in their particular design are going to get executed right. Yeah. So when you talk about pragmatic or applicable building science, actionable, sorry, actionable applied building science. And I know you talk about a before construction phase, there are things you can do. And then during, these are the things that you would work with your builder customers on, make sure you yeah. have these details. Well, I, ideally, steps nailed ideally down. What, what I'm struggling with right now is getting invited into the, the design process. So this, I think, you know, lead for homes, maybe is the first kind of program that has talked about this charrette process or this design integration process where you're bringing together uh, the architect, the builder, the energy consultant, the HVAC contractor, maybe the insulator. So, you know, key, key actors, I guess, in the construction process together at the beginning so that you can talk about the goals of the pro project. You can talk about, you know, how are you actually going to design in and run an HVAC system from the basement to the second floor? Hmm. You know, we, we love these open floor plans, but we give the plans to the HVAC contractor and say, make it happen rather than actually designing the ducts into the house. Uh, you know, same with, you know, the building assemblies and how do we, you know, the code gives us great guidance now, especially in the 2021 IECC, but it's been there for quite some time with regards to how to warm the first condensing surface of the house. And every builder wants to trade off that exterior continuous insulation uh, out there, especially the larger production builders. So if, if you were brought into the, the design process, an energy consultant could do an energy model. They could demonstrate, you know, why that continuous insulation is needed, uh, and hopefully help builders execute it in a cost-effective way. 
um, is at right now first costs are driving everything. You, you got to right. justify it, you know, that first cost. Uh, right. Are those the, so what are those, the ones you just mentioned, HVAC ducts, maybe the, maybe the building envelope thermal, is that, are those the, the biggest challenges faced by builders in that, in that design phase or? Yeah, I think, I, well, it, or let me put it in another, is, are those the biggest gains maybe to be had in the building performance? If we were to, if builders were to focus there, think about our listeners, or if I'm a builder listening to this, what are the things I can do to move my business forward or my, my building performance forward? Yeah, building performance definitely could be moved forward by concentrating on on the energy code because I, I like to think of the energy code as a as a gateway to all the building performance issues mm. that are in the, that are happening in the house. And you know we're not just focusing on the thermal resistance of energy from higher concentration to lower concentrations. We're focusing on all the control layers uh, in that house and uh, understanding water control, um, air control, thermal control, and vapor control uh, in our houses is crucial to the energy code, but it's also crucial to the overall performance of the house because the, we're asking the house to do a lot more than just um, just be energy efficient. We're asking for that house to be fundamentally comfortable from room to room and floor to floor. We're asking it to be long-term durability is, is one of the intent and scope statements of the codes. Uh, we're asking it to be safe. And now more and more, we're asking it to be resilient, to be able to be able to swing when we have a, uh, a blackout or we have the deep freeze that happened in uh, Texas. You know, there's no reason that those houses should, should have frozen yeah. uh, there and those pipes were reversed and whatnot there. Do you think that, um... So, I mean, again, it's, I'm putting on the building code official is oftentimes, let me just say this, I guess my, my view would be their heavy focus is on issues of safety, life safety, right? With, as they go about their job and inspections and checkpoints during the building process. Is that just, is that a misperception on my part? I mean, you're arguing that there are also issues of durability and, and maybe even performance here, but that- Yeah. Does, does that I onus fall on the code official? I think to some extent, yes, uh, because I believe that code officials erroneously believe that the energy code is not a health and safety code. Um, personally, I believe the energy code is equally a, a, a health and safety code as, as much as any other code out there. And you, you can look at it from the perspective of, of you know, how many people in the summertime in Chicago uh, can't, you know, actually die in their house because they get too hot inside yeah. their house. Their thermal envelope can't withstand the temperatures of yeah. that house, yeah, the environment in that house. Uh, or oh, when you think about backdrafting uh, atmospherically vented appliances because of the pressure dynamics in that house uh, and maybe that that's all goes back to the energy code. Uh, the the indoor air quality uh, often goes back to the energy code and water management uh, as well. But uh, there's water management issues that with air. There's water management issues that are in the IRC. Uh, 
but you know they both are health and safety codes uh, but they're trying to you know the IRC is a health and safety code but it's also dealing with you know structure of the house the the energy code is a health and safety code but it's also dealing with energy efficiency yeah uh, it's just the kind of this perception that I think code officials have in general, not all of them, but in general, that it's not a health and safety code and that is not as important as the other codes are. Yeah. But what we're seeing, interestingly enough, I think, is that states and municipalities that in essence, in essence govern the building department have a different perspective. And they're starting to say, well, we've got climate action goals. We've got other goals for our municipality. And, you know, in essence, energy code folks, you've got to get on board uh, here. You know, we, we're going to take the code. We're going to adopt the code and take it far beyond what even the IECC has, has uh, released out there. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's a fight municipality by municipality, right? Jurisdiction yeah. by jurisdiction. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Especially in Colorado, because we're a home rule state, which means yeah. that in the you know greater Metro Denver area, you have you know thirty or forty different codes and code code jurisdictions. Uh, we yeah. don't have a statewide code here. It's really challenging. I saw a uh, again as I was on your website, I saw the video by I think it was Illinois Energy Raiders. The um, if if homes were built like cars, yeah, just some great points. If I would encourage anybody to go check out Robbie's Build Tank website and um, and look for that video because yeah, it's to that point. Like you know, cars are built to a standard. Maybe you have a California standard. It's a little bit different, but. Imagine if a car was built to a local jurisdiction, you know, different for me yeah. in Pennsylvania than for you in Colorado than for other people in Virginia. Well, it's and, crazy. And to, that, to that point, um, imagine that all the components to build the car were just dumped in your driveway without directions, without yeah. saying start with this component, and you've got to put it together every time uniquely, every time you get a car. It is amazing. <laughs> You yeah, know, that, that's what we're doing with our houses. Right. Yeah. Now, having said that, our houses are different today than they were 100 years ago, right? We're living, we are more comfortable. The, the expectations and standards keep getting elevated, but we are yes, doing yes more. Yes no. Yeah. You know, we're, 100 years ago, we were stick framing our houses. True. And 100 years ago, a, you know, it was maybe a small family business took it from uh, foundation through finished carpentry. Um, today we've got, you know, the NHB did a study a few years ago that indicated that upwards of 300 people are touching our houses, uh, each individual house today. And there's one guy that might or might not truly understand, um, the construction process from foundation through finished carpentry. Our construction managers more understand how to, how to run a schedule and then they're relying on individual trade partners to do their job well. And they might or might not be able to evaluate if that job was done correctly or not. Yeah. There. Um, but I think the biggest thing that has changed the way that we're building is, is our people's expectations and particularly their expectations of comfort. Right. And in that, you know, you take a 1910 house, I say often in, in trainings that I do, you take that 1910 house, 
And if our grandparents were, were living in that house, they would, you know, under, maybe not consciously, but they understand that I've got to put a sweater on in the wintertime, or maybe I actually have to shovel some coal uh, to, to make that house uh, warm and comfortable. Yeah. And today we literally want to be able to walk around in our underwear from room to room and floor to floor and be quote unquote comfortable in right. that house. And, and in order to do that, we've had to change the way that, you know, fundamentally change the way that we build our house. Um, we need, we've added insulation, we've tightened the envelope, we've done all these things uh, to that house. Then we start getting these building durability issues because we've done those things because right. we didn't understand the building science there. We didn't understand that that because that 1910 house was so inefficient, it had the ability to dry. To dry, right. It, it, when it gets wet. And so we've learned you know, through our mistakes that we need to incorporate the building science and be able to insulate and air tighten the house and ventilate the house properly. And then think about what's the drying potential of these assemblies, what's the permeability of these assemblies and, and whatnot. So it's- yeah. You reminded me, I grew up in Northeastern Pennsylvania. And so um, during the energy crisis of the seventies, I was, a, you know, I was a young kid, teenager, and my dad put in a wood stove uh, yeah. in the basement, a boiler that supplemented, heated the hot water. It was a hot water um, heat, baseboard heat, oil burner. And so it, the wood fire, you know, supplement, heat the water that went over to the oil burner and it made up any difference. If there wasn't any, then it got circulated the rest of the house. So every day before school, I'd go down in that basement in the winter. It was a nasty old basement. This house was 100 to 175 years old. It had three different additions. We had renovated it. Um, it was a nasty old basement. And I had to load that thing up with wood. <laughs> and, uh, I, and then we had a fireplace in the really bad days. Or if oil price was real high, we'd fire up the fireplace in the living room. We had, so we lived off, we'd burn seven or eight cord during the winter of 77, 78 is what I'm remembering. And um, but I'm sure that that house was drafty. It was old. It was drafty. I'm sure the windows weren't flashed. Maybe yeah. they were caulked. Maybe they weren't. I, I don't recall any durability, any rotting issues. You know, I'm sure it was getting wet and drying to your point. Yeah, um, yeah, for sure. So um, I'm curious from your perspective, what challenges are you seeing that builders are facing? Right now. Yeah, I mean, it's it, some of the same ones we've talked about, um, obviously, you know, um, the ability to skilled labor, quality labor, I guess, skilled labor, getting folks want to do a good, I believe folks want to do a good job when they go to work, but they may not necessarily be trained or know all the uh, implications of what they're doing or not doing. So if I don't do it this way, am I potentially creating a problem? So you know, training is always a challenge for us and our a challenge for our customers that we're that we're focused on. Um, you know, in the past, the past two years have been absolutely crazy for business, right? Crazy strong, you could sell everything you make that's starting to flip now. So yeah. whether I talk to even the builder customers, I was with builders a couple of weeks ago at a conference in New York. Um, and the words they're using are many of the words we're thinking about internally, things like, okay, we got to go, quote, learn how to sell again, right? It's not just not just taking orders uh, yeah. as where we've been the last couple of years. So that's a challenge I think that the industry is going to have going forward over the next, as we get our, as we get our feet under us coming out of the, uh, the pandemic, um, learning how to sell again and, and being able to 
clearly, you know, enunciate your value prop, tell your, tell the story of your value proposition. Cause yeah. it, 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 some of that's, some of that hasn't been needed the last, um, the last couple of years. Um, you know, we continue to push on continuous exterior, continuous insulation, but as we know, it's a low take rate. Not many builders build that way in the industry. It is expensive, right? It obviously adds some initial cost, at least in, for those components. I think it can help reduce cost in other systems. I think, and, and you know, you tell me you work in this, I'm, I'm sure you've, you've done the, the cost analysis as well, that if you, if you, change the assembly design, you can get other benefits and you can help reduce costs somewhere else or help reduce total cost of operation of the building. Yeah. Yeah. I personally am tired of the first cost discussion. I just think it's, it's, it's ultimately becoming, um, it, it will never become irrelevant, but for the benefit that you're yeah. getting, it's irrelevant. Um, there, you know, you take, you, if you ever do kind of a whole wall R value analysis, you know, we, we, we think we're doing super well when we say we've got an R23 wall, but the reality is that when you take into account the framing in that wall, the R23 cavity insulation, uh, just those two components, the framing and the R23, your whole R value for that wall is, is around 12 or so, you know, it's almost cut in half there just yeah. because of the framing thermal bridging there. Yeah. And then you add windows into the equation and you cut it another third. You got your, your R23 wall that we're so proud about is actually performing like an R8 or nine or something like that. So uh, the continuous insulation is hugely valuable. Uh, for the overall performance of that house, the energy savings that you're going to get, the livability. We never talk, you know, builders always are talking about first cost, but they never talk about um, operational costs, right. opportunity costs, or all these other things that are valuable to the actual consumer there. Yeah. So I, again, I'm kind of frustrated about all the attention on first costs of construction. Do you, do so I have two thoughts on that. First one is, um, as when you work with customers, do customers, do your customers primarily come to you and say, I understand I can't be focused there. Help me change my praxis. Um, you know, so, so I'm, I'm not all about first costs or is it that your customers and you have to come to you and you have to convince them to move away from that or is it a mix? Like, your customers come to you already yeah. knowing, yeah, I know first cost is in the way and I just help me get away from it and help me help me realize the benefits of a, of a, of a better performing uh, home. No, I, I think that's part of the frustration is that they they aren't coming to me in that way. Uh, okay. They, you know, cost is is always part part of the equation. And especially now I'm working in uh, as the new homes building advisor for the Marshall Fire rebuild. And uh, most of these homeowners who lost their house are severely mm -hmm. underinsured. So cost is a, is a huge mm -hmm. issue with that. But um, interesting, I think it's interesting because the Home Builders Association, um, at the beginning, you know, right when the fire happened, were coming out with crazy statements like the going to the 2021 energy code over 
the 2018 energy code is going to be $100,000 in incremental cost. So they're using the first cost argument to justify not progressing and evolving our construction practices there. Yeah. So now we're seeing, you know, luckily locally, uh, Excel Energy, our local energy provider, is offering these, these amazing incentives to build just to the 2021, they get $7,500 just to permit the house under the 2021 IECC. If they build the Energy Star, they get $10,000 towards that. that they built sorry, it, that's Colorado or that's federal? That's, that's, it's just for the Marshall Fire rebuild. Marshall Fire, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I can tell you, you know, it goes all the way up to about $37,000 if they do a passive house. And then the state of Colorado is, you know, going back to the climate action goals, if they electrify the house, the state of Colorado will add an additional $10,000 uh, to the pot for electrification of that house. So um, what, what I am seeing is that there's more and more interest in discussions about carbon uh, emissions and carbon embodied carbon in our houses. Uh, that I think is being driven by climate change issues. Yeah. And therefore, people are having this discussion about electrifying houses, which in turn is getting us to say, we've got to have these better performing building thermal envelopes so that we can reduce the loads and we can make heat pumps work better. Make them work, right. In our houses and, and whatnot, which then also gets us into you know, the things that DuPont's interested in is, you know, the, the water management, the exterior insulation and, and whatnot. Right. Yeah. The, the second comment I was going to make was similar to energy, I think, in the sustainability world around, you know, um, carbon reduction. I've seen the same thing in the, in the few builders where we've interacted with directly um, at some summits talking about sustainability as a topic. I, I see the same thing, like there's an awful lot of focus on building the home and the materials used and, and, you know, we've even talked about number of trips the trade makes while building the home, but very little, I don't want to say understanding, but recognition or um, effort to influence the operation, you know, to focus on carbon reduction of the operation of the home for the next 50 to 75 yeah. to 100 years. At just the way the I, I don't know I I would say it's I would argue it's maybe just the way the business model set up right they close on the house now it's the homeowners and uh, for the next seventy five yeah. years but somehow I think that that's where I'm we're, we're doing some work and interested in thinking about how do we what moves the needle in the world of sustainability and carbon reduction where are the big lever points and how do we if that is in fact in and I believe it's in the operation of the home as much as it is in the building probably even more yeah wow how do we how do we change that? I guess I mean, that's kind of what your work is about, right? How do you yeah. get there? How do you move that into the mainstream? Exactly. I mean, that's that's kind of why um, I created Build Tank. Uh, again, I call it a practical building think tank. And my thinking is, you know, how do we make sound building science, applied building science, construction mainstream? Yeah. And so trying to get involved in projects that hopefully move that needle forward. Uh, so I'm interested in you know, what, what you're talking about and how a large company like DuPont can, you know, contributes to 
making all of this mainstream building. Yeah. We've just taken some action at the corporate level. Um, there's a heavy, heavy focus on sustainability in terms of um, integrating it into all we do and in our innovation projects and so forth. So if it's not aligned with a sustainability goal as, a, as an innovation project, it's probably not going to get worked on. It has to support our innovation goal or our sustainability goals. Um, and what does sustainability mean to a company like? Uh, so, you know, we... Um, it goes back to we we've kind of ladder up to there's these UN sustainable development goals, these SDGs, and then and then we kind of in our business believe and I forget the number it's four or five or six of them that we believe we can influence the biggest one is climate action. So uh, we've taken some action recently with respect to blowing agents in our, our rigid foams and our styrofoam as well as in our spray foams froth pack to lower our global warming potential and, and reduce some chemicals of concern so. Um, and so that's going to have a huge impact on DuPont's um, effect on the climate. And actually, that, that change with styrofoam is, is, a, is a tremendous part of the overall goal of DuPont. It gets us a long ways towards our, our goal. Um, so there's things like climate action, chemicals of concern, circularity, right, recyclability of materials, that we think of these innovation themes that we then look to um, sorry, these sustainable themes that we then look to innovate against. How can we apply our science to and and or our application science and building to uh, affect change and with respect to those things, climate, circularity, and reducing chemicals of concern. There's some others. Those are the those are the big ones. Yeah, interesting. It's a it's was, a corp it's a corp. I was just gonna say it's a corporate wide effort. It goes across all. It's more than building, obviously, right? We sell into many many different industries, and. Um, and so it's going to be really interesting to see where that goes. I know that, there, you know, there's a lot of, um, I like to reference a letter from the CEO of BlackRock, a, a managed fund with, you know, trillions of dollars of assets, trillions of dollars of assets under their, their control. And uh, their CEO, Larry Fink, writes a letter to CEOs every year. So I'd encourage folks to go Google it and look at what he says in this, in his letter to CEOs about sustainability. And you know, a couple of points, there's huge dollars coming from the investment community. I've even, you know, I've heard of national public builders that can't get money unless they uh, clearly define their sustainability goals for what they're going to do with that land that they're buying. So um, there's money coming at it and there's just innovation and focus. Um, and he makes some statements like, you know, you thought the, uh, the tech, uh, the innovations in the technology world over the last 20 years have been something you, you haven't seen anything yet. Wait, do you see what's coming with respect to sustainability? So some some pretty strong statements of support from you know, a person that manages a, a lot of money in the world and, and and I think is a bellwether for where maybe the rest of the uh, of the financial industry might be yeah. at. So you're talking a little bit about the ESG. Uh, yeah, statements that that builders now are starting to, especially the, the large national builders are starting to uh, incorporate in their um, funding statements and. Correct. Yeah, we're seeing, we're seeing more and more of the uh, top builders, the largest builders, um, you know, have assigned somebody, an ESG officer, if you will, for lack of a better word, but somebody with a responsibility and role to drive uh, good ESG, um, performance or practices in their in their business we tend to think we're kind of coming around to the um the thought that esg is as much about kind of um, the financials and the reporting and the wall street and that 
kind of um, those kind of activities versus sustainability, which is about the the application of in our world, right? The, the the products and the building of the homes and so forth. And so they're they're not they don't always speak the same language. And so when, whenever I hear ESG now, I'm thinking more about reporting and financial and the CFO, where you see a lot of these roles yeah. ladder up to. And in sustainability, I think about the building science and how do you build the home and, and so forth. So I, that's just kind of where our head is at at the moment. I don't know if that'll play out that way, but that's how we're starting to think about the world a little bit. I think that makes a lot of sense because it seems like there's misalignment between the ESG goals and the ultimate financial goals of a national traded building company because yeah. that you're you're looking for investors so you're trying to um attract those investors through these esg statements and and goals and what however they're implementing those things but you're also answering to those investors from a first cost perspective and yeah. the first cost perspective is is the is the most detrimental thing to ultimate building performance and yeah. creating that sustainability that you're trying to put forward to the invest to attract the investor. It's an interesting conflict. Yeah. yeah. I will say that I also heard from some builder, a builder, I will say public builder recently that, um, and I hadn't thought about this, but you know, the SEC, the Securities Exchange Commission has issued some rules for around ESG reporting, at least some, um, I think for open for public comment. I don't think they're actually issued in final form yet. But one of the comments from this particular person was, well, if I put aspirational goals out there as my ESG statement, you know, by 2025, by 2030, I want to be 100% zero energy ready homes. Am I setting myself up for a problem with the with the SEC, right? Because I, I, it's like guidance on a stock, you know, I'm putting a number out that I is aspirational, I may or may not attain it. And so am I going to get hammered if I don't attain it? It's kind of the same question you just brought up this balance of pricing and profits and financial projections and versus, you know, performance versus, um, versus my ESG goals. It's going to be interesting to see how it plays out over the coming years. Yeah, I agree. I think that will be very interesting to see. I was just thinking kind of, a, of an example of that, uh, applied is that with the 2021 IECC, um, I see basically three things that builders don't want to do. Uh, which is they don't want to, in my climate zone, climate zone five, they don't want to go to an R60 attic. They don't want to put on exterior continuous insulation. And if they're doing any type of slab, they don't want to put on slab edge insulation. Yeah. Um, in the past, if they, if they didn't want to do those things, they could um, go to a performance uh, compliance approach and gain flexibility and and probably be able to trade that off with the 2021 it's much harder to trade off you might be able to trade off one of those things but you can't trade off all of those things so to some extent i think that the code is helping to um, blend both those goals that a builder has in terms of figuring out their esg implementation and also um, uh, answering to their shareholders and, and to the actual buyers of these homes. Yeah. 
Yeah, it's interesting. I, I hadn't thought about it till you brought it up. That that conflict is there, and it yeah, it's going to be fascinating to to watch it play out. So I think we probably um, we've talked about a number of issues. Anything as we close here, any any last thoughts from your perspective? I'm glad we got smart, capable, experienced, talented people like yourself out there working in the industry and helping guide the industry and think about these long term, yeah, yeah. long term issues. Anything you want to close with? Uh, well, yes, I think that that it's great to have people out there that are trying to to implement these things and. I mean, I'm just one of, of many people that are doing it. But I also think that it's um, really been great to have support from companies like DuPont, uh, the resources that you put into not only developing uh, uh, good products that help us perform, but to educate us about those products and, and beyond just the product uh, to uh, put up uh, uh, you know, working with companies like Construction Instruction to be able to uh, illustrate how to install things. Uh, all those efforts, I think, um, are kind of untold behind the scenes things that that really make a difference in our world. And I, I'm curious um, how DuPont views those things and if it's, uh, you know, consciously just a lost leader or do, the, do you think there are other reasons besides just selling product that that uh, a company like DuPont is so invested in in doing that. Well, I, it is a it's a good question. It is a key part of our value proposition. But there's also this belief, overriding belief, that a well-educated, you know, well-trained builder tradesman, if they know their building science, they know their craft. At the end of the day, we have good products. We have a good value proposition. We will get our fair share. So a well-educated person in the in the industry serves us well. I think that's kind of the overarching belief, if you will. And then we go from there, right? And we try to strengthen how we get to market and how we how we deliver that training and the knowledge and so forth. And like with partners, like you mentioned with construction instruction, but that's the, to me, that's the overarching belief is that a well-educated, well-informed, knowledgeable person, they'll choose DuPont enough that we're happy with that. You know, and then we'll go, we can compete, we can compete from there, but it kind of starts with that. So yeah, we do it to sell more products. I mean, don't, you know, right, we're in business. Um, but we know that by moving the industry forward, a rising tide will lift all boats as well. Very good. That's, that's so, interesting. Great. Well, it's good talking to you, Rami. I enjoyed it. And uh, I think we could, yeah, we'll have you back on at some point in the future. We'll continue the discussion. There's lots to talk about in this area. It's a really, really fascinating area. Uh, in construction right now. Yeah, I really appreciate it. It was fun talking to you as well. This podcast is brought to you by DuPont Performance Building Solutions, who provides the marketplace with a full suite of weatherization, thermal, and air sealing solutions, such as DuPont Tyvek wraps, flashings, and tapes, DuPont Styrofoam brand XPS rigid foam board, and Great Stuff and Froth Pack spray foams. DuPont knows the homes you build today will need to stand the test of time, expanding, contracting, breathing and protecting for generations to come. Be sure to check back often for new episodes. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Alan Hubble, and residentially speaking, that's a wrap.